Uh, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 14. We're going to cover three chapters today. We're continuing in our series from the life of David. Um, as you're turning <clears throat> to that passage, let me just add one other quick announcement. Every summer, uh, we have a time of testimony, and so uh, we want to do our call-outs for our testimony time, which is going to be in July and August. And we're going to do something a little different this year. Uh, typically, each testimony is 15 to 20 minutes, uh, where God, um, where we just allow our members to really share more deeply. But this year, what we want to do is we want to do sort of couplets. We want you to share a testimony of how someone in the body has blessed you or helped you or encouraged you, and then a three to five minute clip. Then we want to take that three to five minute clip and send it to the person that you have called out. So if Tom gives a testimony about Jacob, we want Jacob to receive that, and we want that testimony to be played and also the response to that testimony. So we're going to call this preaching series One Another. Uh, there are 35 one another scriptures in the Bible, how we can encourage one another, pray for one another, serve one another, and on and on it goes. So we're excited for this, but start thinking about people that you want to recognize and say, you know what, I'm so thankful that God has put you in my life. And then to share that testimony, and then we're going to take that and share it with the person that you've called out. It's going to take a little bit more administration, and that's why we're um, putting the call out uh, right now. So be thinking on that. In 2 Samuel chapter 14 through 16, we are going to be looking at a very tragic situation in which Absalom, the son of David, attempts to overthrow his dad. And the title of my message this morning is called The Forest Fire of Sin. And I want us to just back up for one second to this verse in 2 Samuel chapter 12 in which after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, Nathan the prophet said to David, you shall not die. But this is what the Lord says, behold, I'm going to raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it in secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and in open daylight. And we're going to see in these chapters today how this came to pass. Father, we look to you right now. Help us to grow. Help us to learn. Help us to receive. We open our hearts, Holy Spirit, that you would have your way in this day. Clear out all that's in the temple, God, that needs to be cleared out so that you can find a place to abide, to grow us, and to help us. We commit this time to you. We thank you for your eternal word. In Jesus' name, amen. So <clears throat> last time that I shared, I put up this graphic, and I want to uh, show it to us again. It looks kind of complicated, but just allow me to provide the voiceover. This story has a lot of people involved in it. So when I start calling out the names, I don't want it to just become a soup in your head, but you have a bit of an idea of who belongs where and how the cast of characters are interacting. In the blue and the pink, you see David's nearest of kin, the sons and the daughters. David, of course, is in that top row. Uh, he is one of eight brothers. And in the second row there, you see the eight wives that uh, David had. <clears throat> when we talked about the tragic situation between the two sons, Amnon, I apologize, actually, last time I shared, I kept referring to him as Ammon. I forgot the end. Amnon, 
uh, was David's oldest son, and Absalom was his third oldest son. In total, David had 19 sons. And Amnon inexplicably developed this carnal desire for Tamar, his half-sister, ended up raping her. Amnon is so upset that he kills Amnon in revenge for her. You go back up the family tree, this whole thing started because David had an adulterous affair with Bathsheba on the right side of your screen there in pink. And in order to cover up that adulterous relationship, he killed Uriah, who is the father of Bathsheba. So this sets into motion all the events that we're going to talk about in these next three chapters. In the green, as you see towards the top, represents all the military people that were involved in David's administration. Abishai and Jacob, as you can see, were sons of Zeruiah, Zeruiah, who was a brother to David. So Abishai and Jacob were nephews of David. David was their uncle. And under Abishai and Jacob was all the military. There was Etai, who was leading the elite uh, bodyguards to David. And in the green there, you'll see a notation, the Tekoa woman. We'll talk about that in a second. You drop down more towards the graph. You see in the orange, these are key counselors to David, wise men that would help David rule. There was two guys there, one called Ahithophel and another one called Hush-Ai. And they're going to come into play in this story. And then in the yellow, you see the priests. So we've got the military that's supporting David. We've got counselors that's supporting David. And then we have the priests. And when you see the lineage and you trace it down, in the yellow, the priests that were serving David was Zadok and Abiathar. Zadok and Abiathar and their two sons, respectively, were Ahimaaz and Jonathan. The last thing to bring out is way on the left side is Saul's um, lineage that were lingering in the background. Jonathan, of course, had his son uh, King Saul, I'm sorry, had his son Jonathan, who was the best friend with David before he died, and Jonathan had a son, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth's butler was called Ziba. Again, all these people are going to come into play uh, in this story. So there's a lot going on. And then the last person to just mention here is Shimei, who is also in the gray. He was of the clan of King Saul. So <clears throat> again, that's background for us. Uh, thank you for showing that slide there. So Absalom kills Amnon, and he flees to Geshur, and he's there for three years. Now King David is sad that his oldest son, Amnon, has died, but his heart longs for Absalom, even though he has killed his older brother. It's a strange situation. We're going to get into it. And Joab the general sees <clears throat> that the king is longing for him. And so he sets up this situation in which he goes and he recruits a woman from the city of Tekoa. That's why that lady was put on the graph in that previous slide. Joab the general goes out and recruits a woman from Tekoa and he gets her to go before the king to present a very intricate parable. And so the woman personalizes his parable and says to the king that there is a woman, me, who is a widow. I had two sons. One kills the other. Now the clan wants to avenge the son that was killed. But if my remaining son is killed because I'm a widow, I will have no support from my family, and the family name will be cut off. The family name will not be carried on. 
So King David is listening to this, and his heart swells, and he has mercy on the woman, and he says, no worry, I'm going to grant you clemency and protection so that no one can kill your remaining son. Now what she's referring to is the judicial rules in the Old Testament that the avengers of blood can kill those who have murdered. And so King David is saying, I'm going to pardon anyone, and I'm going to protect your son from being murdered. So he's going above the Levitical law and saying, I'm giving you, in that sense, royal protection. So I don't know if David understood what was happening, but as the parable is unfolding, the lady turns the whole thing around and says, King, if you're willing to protect the last son that was a murderer, why aren't you doing that for your son Absalom? And so the lady catches King David with his own words. And so King David realizes that he's been caught, and he gives approval for Absalom to come back from Geshur to Jerusalem. And when Jacob comes, I mean, when Absalom comes back, he does not see his dad for two years. We just flip to the next slide there. This will give you now the geographical layout. In the first slide I showed you, it was all the relational layout. So the reason why Absalom went to Geshur was because Geshur is a is a territory outside the land of Israel. So it's not subject to the judicial laws of the Jews. So there's no avenger that he has to worry about. So he flees to Geshur, which also happens to be where his granddad is. Okay, so again, it's, it's very complicated. It's 75, 70 miles north of Jerusalem. And so Joab goes and brings Absalom back to Jerusalem after three years because of what this Tekoa woman said to the king catching the king in his words. So Absalom comes back to Jerusalem for two years. Okay, you can take the graphic off. Thank you. And he sits there for two years. And Absalom's thinking, okay, I get to see my dad. Wait, wait, six months, one year, 18 months, two years, nothing's happening. And he is frustrated beyond belief. He says in chapter 14, verse 32, what's the point of being brought back? It would be better if I was still in Geshur. So he has no way to get to the king because it doesn't follow the protocol since he is, still has a criminal record. So he's trying to get Joab, the military general, to talk to the king. So two times he asks Joab, please go talk to my dad so I can see him. And Joab ignores him. Finally, Absalom is, again, so frustrated, he goes into Joab's yard and burns it down. He sets it on fire. Finally, Joab shows up and says, uh, what's up? He says, I've been here for two years. I haven't had an audience with my dad. Please talk to my dad. So Joab goes to King David, and sure enough, he arranges this meeting. And in verse 33, we see this finally after five years a reunion between Absalom and his dad, but it's super stiff. It says there, when Joab came to the king and told David, David summoned Absalom. Then Absalom came to the king and prostrated himself with his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. That's it. The sun falls down on his face, the king gets up, They hug, and it's over. No conversation, no discussion about what went on, nothing like, hey, I missed you. How were you doing? It's this formal, very stiff 
reunion. Unfortunately, that reunion brought no healing to Absalom. It's too late. His resentment and bitterness have taken root. He basically thinks that his dad is a farce. I can do better. So he begins to conspire to take over his dad's throne. And the way he does it is that he conveniently positions himself by the gate of the city, Jerusalem, early in the morning. And he's looking very official as the king's son. And he has a chariot and horses and 50 men. And he tells everyone who's coming to the city to get their case heard. You know what? The courts are clogged. You're never going to be able to get in. Let me adjudicate for you. So he makes these decisions for them, and they get a speedy decision. And so the people are very happy, like they've jumped the queue. They don't have to wait in line. And so when the people would bow down and show their gratefulness to Absalom, he would reach out and hug them. A man of great position would reach out and give them that personal touch. And so there was a showmanship side to Absalom, and the people began to fall in love with him. His reputation began to grow in the country. Hey, if you want something to get done, go to Absalom. He is the consummate politician. Additionally, Absalom used his killer good looks, his handsomeness, to beguile the people. In 1425, the scripture says that from head to toe he was gorgeous, no blemish. He was more handsome than Tom Cruise or Brad Pitt. He was like a, a Jack Kennedy or a Justin Trudeau, dashing and debonair. He grew so much hair, get this, when he cut off his hair, it weighed five pounds. That's how thick and dark and heavy his hair was. So he does this for four years, sitting at the city gates, wooing the people, giving them a decision, hugging them, glad-handing them, building this relationship. And finally, after four years, as it says in chapter 15, verse 7, he's ready to make his move. The people are his because in the verse prior it says he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So he's been laying this plan. Now we're talking nine years from the time that he killed his brother, then going to Geshur, then coming back to Jerusalem, waiting two years, and then setting the stage for him to overthrow his dad. Nine years. So then he goes back to Hebron. What's the significance of Hebron? Hebron is where David first started his rule. And it's where Absalom was born. And so he tells his dad, when I was in Geshur and I had no hope of coming back to Jerusalem, <clears throat> I vowed to the Lord if somehow miraculously I could get back to Jerusalem, I would serve God and I would pay my vows in the birthplace, Hebron. So he says to his dad, I need to go back to Hebron. I need to pay this vow. So his dad blesses him. He goes with 200 men. And there, he blows the horn and he declares himself to be the king. Word gets back to David quickly. And instead of marshalling the military to defend himself and defend the city, David does the opposite. He refuses to resist the coup and he does not defend himself. David is put in the untenable position of possibly having to kill his own son. And if he resists Absalom, he could plunge the nation into a civil war because so many people have fallen for him. 
their hearts were stolen by him. So David flees. So in chapter 15, we read all the details. He's fleeing from the royal palace. He has an entourage of about 800 to 1,000 people. It includes his Philistine bodyguards, of which there were 600 of them, his household, his officials, the priests, and the ark of God, the most precious thing to David's heart. They begin moving out of the city in this mass of people. One of his friends, <clears throat> his counselors, was Ahithophel and Hushai. Well, it turns out that Ahithophel is going to betray King David and go over to Absalom's side. But Hushai stays with King David. So they flee, to Jerus- they flee from Jerusalem en route to a city just out the si- outside the city called Bahurim. And so in this slide here that you see, <clears throat> the green represents Absalom's travels from Hebron to Jerusalem. He overthrows the king, and the king now, with all these hundreds of people, leave the city, and they make their way a little bit north to this stopping point called Bahuram. And as they're leaving the city, all the riffraff from Saul's family starts coming out of the woodwork. So Ziba, who is the butler of Mephibosheth, Remember, Mephibosheth is the grandson of Saul. He says to David, I'm come to be with you. And David says, well, where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba misrepresents Mephibosheth and said, oh, he's staying back because he thinks that God is now taking revenge for how you took his dad's kingdom and that the kingdom is going to revert back to him. And then there's another player that comes into this scene, and his name is Shimeon. So as the people are leaving, Shimei is even worse than Ziba. Shimei is literally throwing rocks at the people, throwing dirt at them, and he's cursing them. And he's saying, God is returning and repaying you for being a man of bloodshed because of all that you did to the household of Saul. Now while Shimei is cursing out David and the troops, Abishai, one of the military generals, says, let me cut off the guy's head. Now, Abishai was one of the top inner circle, pardon me, military people. He is known for having killed 300 men in one battle with just one sword. The stories of David's mighty men are just absolutely so cool. You get a chance to study them in 2 Samuel chapter 23. But David stops Abishai from cutting off Shimei's head. And in 1611, David says to Abishai and all his officials, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite, referring to Shimei, leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. And so the whole group make it to the city of Bahuram, exhausted. Absalom now enters the city. The vacuum has been left by David. He overthrows his dad. But the moles planted by David are embedded. The team of five, the two priests and their sons, and Hushai have been told by David to stay in the city and to watch Absalom and to counsel and to send word to him so that he knows what's going on and, if possible, to undermine Absalom's rule. Absalom, of course, does not know this, but David has his secret moles there. 
Next week, um, Alex is going to finish this whole story and he'll give the conclusion as to what this team of five did. But in this moment of triumph, Absalom speaks to Ahithophel. Now, Ahithophel was like the voice of God in those days. David trusted him and now he has betrayed David and gone over to Absalom's side. So Absalom asks him, what should I do to seal this moment of victory? Chapter 16, verse 20. Give us your advice. What should we do? This verse now is um, put up there for you. And then in verse 21, Ahithophel answered, Sleep with your father's concubines whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself obnoxious to your father and the hands of everyone with you will be more resolute. And then verse 22 is the clincher. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he slept with his father's concubines in the, slight, in the sight of all Israel. This is crazy. It's tragic. But it feels exactly what Nathan the prophet said to David, that I will take even your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. What you did in secret, I will do this thing before all Israel in open daylight. Crazy. How do we interpret this carnage? Well, on the human level, there's so much dysfunction going on, you don't even know where to start. As much as David was a great king, he was a poor father. His mercy got out of balance. He did not discipline Amnon, who murdered, I mean, who committed incest with his daughter. He didn't discipline her. And the reason why he couldn't do it was because of his own moral failure and the fear of accusations of hypocrisy. Oh, you can commit adultery with Bathsheba and you can cover it up and you can even kill her husband. But now you're going to punish your own son who has done a crime of equal? The devil had ensnared David. And David was immobilized by the devil. So he didn't do anything about Amnon. And so Absalom is looking at this and he's so frustrated with his dad's weakness, he takes matters into his own hands and kills his brother. Now David is faced with the avenger of blood scenario. <clears throat> and let me just refresh this again. In the Old Testament, if someone was killed <clears throat> and they were proven to be guilty, <clears throat> I'm sorry, if the, pers- if the situation was such that it was proven that they were murdered, the next of kin to the one that was murdered would then render judgment by killing the murderer. So in this case, because Amnon was killed by his brother, the person that would have been in line to kill Absalom would have been Amnon's wife. But Amnon was not married, so the next of kin was the dad, King David. So David is faced with this prospect of having to kill his own son, but he loves Absalom for what he did to Amnon because he did the right thing in the sense of executing justice. But Absalom is resentful. Why, Dad, did you force me to do it? Why didn't you step up? So he grows to despise his dad. Absalom goes to Geshur, stays there for three years, which we talked about, and all the while, David is sitting on the throne, facing the fact that both of his sons are criminals. 
One committed rape and incest and the other murder. He was supposed to render judgment against both of them. But he did neither. His household was unraveling just like God said it would. And David was so morally compromised by his sin with Bathsheba, he was unable to deliver justice at the highest level. This is like having back-to-back George Floyd cases that were slam-dunk verdicts, and David rendered neither of them. Part of you understands Absalom's utter frustration and anger. As a result of David's ineptness, Absalom fills a vacuum, overthrows his dad, even willing to kill his dad. That's what it says in chapter 16, verse 11. How did we get here? This is a story about the folly of sin. Now we have the Psalms that describe to us the feelings and the thoughts that David had as he was going through this wreckage. And in Psalm 38, this is very powerful because we we get to read directly David's inner thoughts. And he said, Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath and do not punish me in your burning anger for your arrows have sunk deep into me and your hand has pressed down on me. There is no healthy part in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin for my guilty deeds have gone over my head. They sure have, David. Like a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my foolishness. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go in mourning all day long. I would too if I were a dad. How do you put this together? My kids hate each other. They've killed each other. Now they hate me. It's all because of what I did. David says, goes on there in Psalm 38, my sides are filled with burning. In the King James, it says, my loins are filled with burning. That's why he fell into adultery with Bathsheba. His loins were filled with lust. And there's no healthy part in my flesh. I feel faint and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails. In the light of my eyes, it's gone from me. Can you imagine how dim David's eyes would have become? My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. Friends, sin is like a fire. There may be times when you play with it and put it out, but there are times when you won't be able to control it and it jumps the fence and now you have a forest fire on your hands. This is what happened with David. He created a forest fire. The chain reaction of sin was unstoppable. Tree after tree was crackling and falling. His sons committed grievous crimes. His family and wives were aghast at what was unfolding. His officials were petrified by the teetering of his rule. His throne is under siege as his own son is seeking to overthrow him. Then the nation is subjected to Absalom's putrid behavior as he has sex with his dad's concubines on the roof of the palace for all to see. 
If that wasn't a middle finger to his dad, I don't know what is. God's arrow surely sunk into David's soul. And God's hand surely pressed David down. Indeed, David's guilty deeds had gone over his head and his wounds were foul and festering because of his foolishness. Did anyone think that foolishness could look like this? We think of foolishness as like some small infraction. Oh, I stole a package of gum. Or I was speeding. Or I was drunk. No, we're, we're talking about foolishness expanded to its nth degree. Yes, foolishness can look like this. This is a generational sin at work. It's generational tragedy at work. Then there's a view from God's perspective. David burned down his own house by his sin, but through brokenness and repentance, he was able to rebuild it. The rest of the story is going to be told by Alex next week as we'll see what happens with Absalom and his coup. But as we find out from David's diaries, David's house is ultimately restored when he repented and came clean. The house had to be burned to the ground, but the foundation was left. And David took his medicine like a man. He didn't complain. He didn't blame shift. He didn't have a pity party. He took 100% responsibility for his actions. Psalm 38, again, coming from David's own journal, he said, I'm ready to fall. My pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. Psalm 32, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not hide my guilt. Now initially he did, but he finally comes around and he says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I'm not hiding my guilt, and I confess my wrongdoing to the Lord. David learned that God desires truth in the innermost being. No more denial, no more self-deception, no more minimizing. I was under stress. It's okay I had an extra drink. It's okay that I got stoned. It's okay that I got bored and I just needed to have an extra relationship. I needed a little spice in my life. None of that stuff. You see it for what it is, and you call it for what it is. And so Psalm 51, David says, I know my wrongdoing. My sin is constantly before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified. You know, when God pours mercy out on us, that is glorious. But there are times when God comes to discipline us and when he disciplines us, he is justified in doing it. And David says, before, Behold, I was brought forth in guilt, and in sin, my mother conceived me. When you go through something like this, you now understand your complete and total depravity. We as modern people, modern Christians, oh, we like to sort of paper it over. Actually, we're quite good. We can save the trees. We can save the frogs. We can save the whales. I can give away my money. I can do something social good. I mean, there's something within me that is just good. I'm, I'm, I'm good. No, you're not. There is rot on the inside. And David saw the rot. 
And so he understood his total depravity. I mean, the nation says, I'm a man after God's heart. That's my reputation. That's wrong. David says, I'm sinful from the day that I was born. I'm a man after your heart only because of the grace of God. So don't deny what you've done or who you are. Again, David says, when I was silent about my sin, my body wasted away. I think there are a lot of physical ailments that are happening in our bodies. Hospitalizations, medications that we need, surgeries that we have to undergo because there's some root there of sin that is racking our body. And David said, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away, my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me, but my vitality failed as with the dry heat of summer. I'm depressed, I'm down, my mental health is not good, my joy is not there, my vitality is gone. By the way, do you know what vitamin means? It means life. It's the same root. When you take a vitamin, it's to put life in your body. My vitality is gone. So out of this, David brings us this exhortation. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which has no understanding. Do you have a will like a steel cable? Or a rope as thick as a donkey's tail? God wants to melt it like wax. That strong will, God wants to melt like wax. That's why David said, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. The melting of your will, the breaking of your will. David says in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, not a resisting heart, not an opposing heart, not a justifying heart, but a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. Create in me a clean heart, God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Oh, I'm so dry. I just can't get with it, Pastor Rich. Maybe we have to dig a little deeper and find out what the root of that presencelessness is about. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Pastor John just brought that out during our communion time. The aspect of joy and that is what God wants to pour out on us. But through all this, what you see is that David took his medicine like a man. Yes, he sinned badly, but he took his medicine. Don't be a baby. Own your sin. What if police officer Chauvin, who killed George Floyd, confessed his sin and took responsibility for what he did? What if the same day he came out and he said, I murdered George Floyd because of my sickening disdain for black people? What if he said that? He would have instantly changed the conversation instead of igniting riots and demonstrations around the world. Denial keeps the dam closed, but confession opens up the floodgates of healing. Beloved, you don't do yourself any good by holding it in, keeping it in, hiding it away. One of the one another scriptures is confess your sin one to another.
And then when you rise from the ashes, pivot. And go teach others what you've learned. Tell them the cautionary tales. Warn them of the folly and the tragedy of sin. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Keep them from making the mistake that you made. So David says in Psalm 51, I will teach wrongdoers your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Maybe in the latter part of David's life, he taught his grandsons what he should have taught his sons. You know, there should be no chapters 11 to 19 in this book. Unfortunately, they're there because of David's sin. These 15 pages should not be here. Rather, they should have been replaced by a totally opposite glorious chapter. Because when Nathan spoke God's discipline to King David, he said, I anointed you as king over Israel. I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and put your master's wives into your care. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. I gave you the whole land, the whole territory, the reign, the royal throne. And if that had been too little, listen to what God says, if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Friends, chapters 11 through 19 should have been about all the things that God wanted to add to David and even more glory and more power and more treasures and riches from God. Instead, we have this sad chapter. The story represents the tragedy of sin and what burns down when we start a forest fire. This chapter in David's life spanned a grueling 17 years. That's a long time. It wasn't like it was over in a few months or a few weeks. 17 years of torture. Be scared to sin. Be scared to sin. And spare yourself the heartache of a long burn. Walk in the fear of God and avoid what David did. Father, we just come before you. We bow our heads in humility. It's scary, God, to read about these kinds of things and the destruction that is wrought because of our foolishness. I pray, God, that your restraining grace would be upon us. I just sense, even as I'm praying, that there's some people that have been listening. You've been contemplating doing something quite foolish. God says, stop in your tracks and do not do that foolishness. Even though everything in your flesh rages that you want to do it, God says, stop and turn around. Run into the arms of someone who can help you. Crowd in desperation. Lord, there's so much hurt and healing, hurt that comes out of, Lord, the wrong steps that we make. And had David understood what would unravel in his life, I think it would have prevented him. But now he speaks to us from a place of experience. And he wants to teach us, as he wrote in Psalm 51, as sinners, your ways and how you come 
Lord, to reprove us, but ultimately also to heal us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for these words of warning. They sober us and they help us, Father God, to stay far away from destruction. So we thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. What a crazy story that we, we just kind of sat through today. It's, it's for, for us, it's, in some ways, it's the consequence of David's sin. But there's so much for us to really take in from this, this story. And one of the things that, for me, as, I, as I'm hearing as Pastor Rich is, is preaching on it, is that there is a call to repentance. There is a call for, for the church to come to a place of repentance, to be able to see the grace of God, to be able to see Jesus back on the throne. One of the things that, that keeps us from coming to that place of confession and repentance is the idea of shame. Shame is not actually from God. God doesn't shame us. He doesn't give us the guilt and the shame that we feel. The devil does. The enemy does that to us. And sometimes that's the place that we cannot actually overcome to come to that place of confession, to come to that place of, of, of repentance. It's because we can't overcome the guilt and the shame. And we see that David felt all of that. He felt the guilt. He felt the shame in all that as he wrote in Psalms 38. But one thing that he wrote as he comes to the other side of his confession, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your willing spirit. The joy of salvation is a place that we need to go to for us to humble ourselves to come to that place of confession. And when we get to that place, what follows that, it says, then I will teach transgressors your way and the sinners will return to you. That's so powerful. That as Pastor Rich finished off with these verses, this, this idea is the aspect of sinners turning back to Jesus. That in the joy of salvation, as sinners, we will turn back. And so, there's been many times that Pastor Rich has stood on this stage and said, if there's anything that you need to make right, go and make those wrongs right. And this is another place of just confessing your sins making those wrongs right and it's hard for us because there's a pride that's within us there's a shame that's within us there's a guilt that's within us that stops us from doing that but i promise you this that god calls us to that place of doing that so that our conscience is clean and not only our conscience is clean that we experience forgiveness when we go and do something that we get to experience god's love we get to experience His grace. We get to experience His mercy. 
And then that joy will be restored so that you could teach others to do the same thing. You see, this is the power of the church here. This is the power of the church because this is not what society teaches us to do. This is not what society tells us to do. But this is what the church is supposed to do. And when the church is able to do something like this, the world will see that the church is different. Not because we, we dress a certain way or we hold ourselves a certain way, but it's because we have the, the humility of Christ, the confessions of our sins, and the redemption of Jesus, and the joy of salvation that comes upon us, that we could live in a way that affects change in the entire world. There are so many things that for us that we feel that is just thrown upon our lives. And some of that is right, some of that is wrong. And I'm not saying that you take everything that's thrown on you. But if we take some of these things and these comments that people say about us and we know that it's true, that if we confess with our mouths, God will come into that place and bring a restoration, bring a joy back into that place. And so church, I encourage you guys to continue to do this. I mean, some of these verses and these stories as we go through the life of David is so hard to teach. And sometimes we take these stories and we're like, well, what, 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 is this, what is the church supposed to hear? And today I really believe that there is a message for the church to hear. It's a posture for the church to take. It's a place where we own up to our failures and make what we've done wrong as a church right again. So let me pray. Father God, we just thank you for this story. Lord, for these challenges that you've given us. Lord, that as a church, we have a responsibility to respond to these things because these stories give us a glimpse of how your heart functions and how your heart works and how the church needs to, to, to respond is a reflection of that heart. So Father God, as we are challenged in a place of confession, challenged in a place of repentance, challenged in a, faith, a place where we need to own up to certain things that we've done. Lord, may you give us the grace and the mercy to do, the, to do just that. And when we are able to do that, may you restore joy into our spirit so that we could teach others your ways. So Lord, we thank you for a man like David, that even in his failures, he came towards you, that even in his failures, he, he looked towards you, he placed his spirit into yours. Lord, may we do the same. So Lord, give us the courage that we need. Give us the humility that we need. And allow us to be your church so that your name be glorified. We pray all this in Jesus' name.
Amen. Well, next week is Mother's Day. We want you to take time to honor our moms, but at the same time, we're going to continue our services online, and we would love for you to join us next week. We'll see you guys next week.